Does your method of prayer have anything to do with God's response? We're in the middle of a discussion about love and obedience, and specifically, we're digging into the concept of magic thinking that can exist in the church. Here's George with more. So we began to learn how to pray for healing. We learned it by use and practice, by witnessing others as they did it, by learning from them. And we discovered that even in this simple act of laying hands and praying for healing, there could be magical thinking. I'll give you an example. One time, we were in another church while some of their more experienced folks showed us how this was done. And most of what they did was biblical and straightforward. But there was one method that they used that we copied and later began to worry us. I suspect the technique was one of those things that arose spontaneously one time and just got copied over and over. Many traditions begin that way and then harden over time into inviolable requirements. And here's how it occurred. In prayer for someone who had been sexually abused by a relative, it became clear that there were unholy ties to the victimizer, connections, emotional, mental, and spiritual, that still bound the victim to the one who had harmed them. The person praying said something like this, In the name of Jesus, I cut those ties. And they were miraculously cut, and the person experienced immediate release and freedom. Power of suggestion? Perhaps, but I don't believe so. I believe God sovereignly acted and cut those ties and gave freedom. I have witnessed many such healings, and it is a great joy to see God move in this way. But my concern is with what the prayer person said next. And I seal the ends of these cords with the blood of Jesus so that they can never rejoin. Now, this sounds good. I see the image. People who have been Christians for a long time often talk about things being covered by the blood of Jesus. These words may even have been appropriate the first time they were spontaneously prayed. And we found ourselves praying that same way after we got home. I remember being present when the same kind of prayer took place and when another victim with unholy ties to a victimizer was set free. The cord was cut. Again, the person we were praying for experienced immediate freedom and release. The night went on. The person who had been healed left for home And then one of those who prayed suddenly said, Oh no, I forgot to seal the ends of the cords with the blood of Jesus. What if they rejoin? In other words, what if the person gets reattached in an unholy way to the victimizer because someone forgot a part of the prayer? I have to admit, this story probably sounds weird to most everybody, including me. But as odd as it is, I'm sharing it because there's an important error that was made. We had begun magical thinking about healing prayer. We had to do it just right, be obedient to the ritual form, or it wouldn't work, or it could go bad later. The cords could rejoin. That's magical thinking. 
This is not what Christians do in prayer. Rather, we seek the presence of God, and He acts. It is not our management of spiritual forces that make any of this work, and it is not our proper use of ritual that makes anything work. Remember, Christians don't do magic. We have a sovereign God who is present with us when we pray. And when we pray in his will, he acts in ways both simple and miraculous. Our prayers and prayer techniques are not ritual acts that have to be done just right of false obedience in order to be effective. In fact, much of the training we do now on prayer is about unlearning bad habits and getting out of the way. In the previous chapter, I mentioned in passing the Protestant superstition about saying the words, in Jesus' name, in order for prayers to be effective. Let's unpack this a little more thoroughly. Here's one place in Scripture from which this idea is deduced. This is from John 14. The truth is, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father, Jesus says. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, because the work of the Son brings glory to the Father. Yes, ask anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, I often pray in a pattern that follows what is suggested here. At the end of a prayer, I will say, in Jesus' name, amen. Many of us were taught that our prayer went unanswered unless it ended with the words, in Jesus' name. But that, that is not what it means to pray, in Jesus' name, any more than you can feed someone with the word, food. If I say, here, take this food and feed your neighbor, it means you take food I have given to you and bring it to the neighbor and feed them. You don't go over there without the food and say the words, George said, take this food. Those aren't magic words, and they won't feed the neighbor. When Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will do it, It means that he has given us his authority to act, to bring healing, to give blessing. The words in my name in Scripture are a legal term equivalent to power of attorney. It means I have the power to act on someone else's behalf as if I were that person. If you give me power of attorney— I can sign contracts that obligate you. I can expend your funds. I can make decisions for you, all with the same authority you have over your affairs. In doing so, I act in your name. That is precisely what the words mean when Jesus says, in my name. We are not using some magical incantation by saying, in Jesus' name. Rather, we are acting in the authority he has given us. That doesn't mean it's wrong to end a prayer that way, even as a reaffirmation of what we believe that he has given us. 
But we need to know that it isn't just the repetition of the right words that makes things happen or makes prayers get heard. Well, let's look even further into this this idea of magical thinking, because it, it exists throughout the church. Lewis Weil, the man who taught liturgics when I was in seminary, liturgics is the form and order of a worship service. Lewis told us a story about the church he attended as a child, a church that was what is often called high church or Anglo-Catholic. Though Anglican and Protestant, this is a form of worship that looks a lot like a Roman Catholic service. During communion, when the priest is up at the altar, he holds his hands up in the Oran's position, up in the air, and reads aloud biblical prayers from an altar book. In an Anglo-Catholic church, his hands usually stay up the whole time, but the pages in the book have to be turned. Often the priest does this himself, but in this church there were acolytes who turned the page. The acolytes would kneel on either side of the altar with their hands folded in front of them as the priest read the service. When it got to the point where there was a page to be turned, one acolyte would rise up, step to the table, and turn the page so the priest could continue. Then he would go back, kneel where he was before, and fold his hands again. When Dr. Weil was growing up, the prayer book his church used was the 1928 edition of the Book of Common Prayer, and the altar book followed this. In 1979, the National Church issued a new prayer book, and along with it a new altar book to be used during the service by the priest. Dr. Weil visited the church of his youth, and as he sat in the pew watching, sure enough, when the priest came up to the altar table, the acolytes were kneeling on either side of the altar, just as they had when he was young. But the new altar book was in the place of the old one. It stayed open, and the priest read from one page to the other, without the page having to be turned where it used to be. Nevertheless, when the service reached the exact point where the previous 1928 altar book would have required a page turn, the acolyte stood up, lightly touched the altar book, and knelt back down again. The form had been preserved, even though it was no longer needed. Dr. Weil was so embarrassed as a teacher of liturgy that he wanted to crawl under the pew in front of him. Touching the book had no purpose, but it had always been done that way, and the reason behind it was lost. It was magical thinking, and it survived in the form of the worship service. We need to look at what we do as Christians and stay away from magical thinking. Can you imagine the freedom we would experience if we were to diffuse our commitment to magic thinking? Obedience becomes a joy instead of a series of rules that must be adhered to. We'll continue this discussion next time. We hope you'll join us. I want to remind you that you can get your own copy of What We Believe and Why by going to the website of the same name, whatwebelieveandwhy.com. George Koch will be back next time. We hope you will be as well. We'll see you then.